Take a seed, you plant it, you grow it, you dry it, you roll it, you smoke it, and it goes down smooth. Hey! Spanning the continent to bring you the truth about cannabis and marijuana law reform. I smoke pot and I like it a lot. CannabisRadio.com presents The Russ Belleville Show The voice of the marijuana nation Hey, this is great, man Now, here's your host Radical Russ Belleville Good day, tokers and toquettes and non-toking lovers of liberty. It is Thursday, June 9th, 2016, and it's got to be 420 somewhere in the world. Thanks for joining us today and giving us a little bit of your time to get you the latest information on marijuana legalization, the cannabis business movement, and, of course, the... uh, ganja culture. However you're looking at this, whether you are in the business, using the business, or you just like to smoke pot, we got something for you here on the Russ Belleville Show. Also, uh, make sure you check out the rest of the shows here on CannabisRadio.com. We are kind of the sampler plate here at the Russ Belleville Show. You get a little bit of news, a little bit of data, a little bit of culture, a little bit of science, a little bit of business. But if you want to get more in-depth into any one particular subject, check out the lineup on CannabisRadio.com. We got Dr. Dina, Doc Rob. We got uh, Vivian McPeak and uh, Tommy Chong, of course. All sorts of great hosts. Nurse Heather. So uh, make sure you check out the lineup, CannabisRadio.com. Coming up on our show today, we've got a very interesting guest joining us. Uh, as you know, I've been traveling the country this year as part of my Legalize America tour. And I've had the opportunity to be in Washington, D.C., twice. And on my last visit to Washington, D.C., I was standing there at a protest with uh, another person, an attorney, a fairly large guy uh, named Gabriel, who has a fascinating story. His background, quite interesting, former special forces, currently a criminal defense attorney. And uh, we got to talking and I found him to be a very interesting guy. And he said, you should have me on your show someday. And I said, All right, let's do that. So today is that day. Joining us at half past for a cannabis community chat, we've got attorney Gabriel Chorno joining us to tell us about his background and his take on this war on certain American citizens using non-pharmaceutical, non-alcoholic, tobacco-free drugs. Also coming up on the show today, we'll get behind the headlines and uh, interesting behind the headlines uh, subject for today in that uh, we're going to talk about Jesse Ventura. You remember Jesse, the former Navy SEAL and pro wrestler who became the unexpected governor of Minnesota. Uh, he's got a new book out about marijuana, and he's got some interesting takes to uh, tell us about it. And uh, we'll uh, go through that in Behind the Headlines. Coming up after Behind the Headlines, we'll do some drug war data mining where the CDC's Youth Behavior Survey becomes the third straight federal data set that shows that the teens haven't uh, become pot zombies since we've legalized. In fact, their use of marijuana has gone down over the past two decades. We'll get deep into the numbers in drug war data mining. Then at the end of the show, we'll have time for a radical rant and something that's been taking social media by storm is this case of Brock Allen Turner, the 20-year-old white uh, privileged swimmer at Stanford uh, who just got a ridiculously short sentence for raping an unconscious girl. And a lot of people are chiming in on the internet, especially in the cannabis community with memes that highlight how he's getting such a light sentence. Now people like Shona Banda or Jeff Mazansky and so many others are getting 
decades in prison uh, for a plant. So we will take a look at that disparity in our justice system and ask the question whether or not anybody, anything can be done about this. What, what are we going to do to equalize the sentences and make them? And not just talking about legalizing marijuana, but how do we actually get real sentences for the people who harm people in our society? We'll take a look at that in our radical rant. And then uh, hour two, we got some other topics to cover. I don't know if you've heard about this latest in asset forfeiture, some technology coming out of the state of Oklahoma. Pretty damn scary stuff. We'll cover that in hour two. Plus, take your calls at 971-533-7111. It's the Russ Bellville Show, live and exclusively on CannabisRadio.com. We're going to take a break, pay some bills. We'll be back in just 120 seconds. Stay tuned. This is the Russ Bellville Show on CannabisRadio.com. Every strain, every sale, every medical study. Keep it right here on the Cannabis Radio Network. Dr. Dabber, hurry. Its temperature is shooting past 1,000 degrees Fahrenheit. It's burning up. I'm afraid for this little guy, it's just too late. What caused the problem? Only Dr. Dabber can maintain the perfect temperature for a smooth-tasting, slower burn. This standard vaporizer lost all of its health benefits, sending it up in smoke. So you're telling me that most vapor pens burn so hot they produce smoke, not vapor? Correct. Keep away from those standard vaporizer pens and turn to Dr. Dabber, doctor's order. Less heat, (laughs) more flavor. Previously on the Stoner Jesus Show. We do have John McAfee. He's running for the Libertarian Party nomination for president. What makes someone like you want to take the reins of this? We're so far behind this frightening and in a cyber war. We can't hack into the Chinese. Back in 1979, they started building cyber defense systems. We didn't even think about it until 20 years ago. I've seen no candidates and certainly no one within government capable of dealing with this issue. The Stoner Jesus Show, live Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Or find the Stoner Jesus Show podcast on demand at CannabisRadio.com and StonerJesus.net. Peace, bitches. The Russ Belleville Show. Chat is for friends 18 and older. We expect our chat to be civil, mature, and free from excessive profanity. If you don't like these rules, there are approximately 6 billion other chat rooms with lower standards that you can visit. Get .buzz. .buzz is the internet platform that fuels community interest, excitement, and new experiences. .buzz is the premier online destination for internet users seeking the latest news on a variety of topics. .buzz appeals to groups active in blogging, communications, journalism, advertising, and marketing. .buzz offers registrants a stronger alternative to the shrinking namespace of existing top-level domain names, such as .com, .net, and .org. Get your name now at get.buzz. It's time for the Cannabis Radio News. Covering the latest headlines in consumer cannabis, medical marijuana, and industrial hemp. Cannabis Radio News is now available exclusively at CannabisRadio.com. Now your marijuana headlines in 4 minutes and 20 seconds. This is Cannabis Radio News. This is your Cannabis Radio News for Thursday, June 9th, 2016. Columbus, Ohio. Ohio Governor John Kasich has signed his state's medical marijuana bill, making Ohio the 25th state to have a functioning medical marijuana program. 
Patients will qualify for medical marijuana with a diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease, cancer, ALS, HIV AIDS, Crohn's disease, Parkinson's disease, Tourette's syndrome, or chronic and severe or intractable pain. While plant material... While plant material will be made available alongside edibles, oils, and tinctures, patients will be forbidden from smoking marijuana, placing patients caught with burned marijuana or smoking paraphernalia at risk of ticketing and prosecution. Cultivating marijuana is still prohibited, and any patients caught growing cannabis will also be subject to the criminal laws of Ohio. Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Governor John Bell Edwards has agreed to match Louisiana's drug laws to conform with its medical marijuana program, so someone who gets the therapeutic drug legally can't be prosecuted. The governor's office announced this week that Edwards signed the bill by Republican Senator Fred Mills into law. It takes effect August 1st. The measure aims to protect patients of the state-sponsored medical marijuana program from laws that penalize people for possession or distribution of marijuana. It also extends that protection to a patient's caregiver and the parents of a minor who receives medical marijuana. The final version of the bill passed with a 29 to 7 Senate vote and a 67 to 21 House vote. Louisiana is still 18 months or more away from getting medical marijuana into patients' hands. Lansing, Michigan. MI Legalize, the Michigan activist group seeking to legalize marijuana, has vowed to fight for its petition signatures in court. The grassroots campaigners had submitted over 354,000 signatures for their marijuana legalization proposal, needing just 252,523 to qualify for the ballot. But the Michigan Board of State Canvassers concluded that over 137,000 of those signatures were outside the statutory 180-day window for signature gathering. Current law allows petitioners to prove that older signatures were those of validly registered voters at the time, but the board dismissed MI Legalize's attempts to validate those signatures. Meanwhile, the legislature has passed and the governor signed a bill more strictly regulating the 180-day signature window, making future petitioning attempts even more difficult. MI Legalize attorneys are suing under the principle that the 180-day window violates citizens' First Amendment right to petition. Hammond, Indiana. Attorneys with the American Civil Liberties Union have filed a federal lawsuit against an Indiana county's refusal to allow an activist group to hold marijuana legalization rallies on the courthouse grounds. Tippecanoe County in 1999 instituted a closed forum policy following controversy over Christmas nativity scenes at the courthouse. The ACLU suit claims the county is engaged in unconstitutional restriction of free speech at the courthouse grounds based on content, noting that other groups, such as a gun control rally, an environmental rally, an art fair, and a protest for Syrian refugees have all been held on the same grounds. Juneau, Alaska. Alaska regulators are poised to award the first licenses for legal marijuana businesses in the state, another milestone for the fledgling industry. Thursday's meeting agenda for the Marijuana Control Board includes 30 applications that will be up for consideration, two of which are for testing facilities. The rest are for grow operations. The board has taken a staggered approach to licensing, focusing first on grow and testing facilities to help ensure there will be legally grown marijuana available for when the first retail stores are authorized. Cynthia Franklin, director of the Alcohol and Marijuana Control Office, has said that a crop life is estimated at 90 days and regulators are looking at September to begin issuing retail license. New York, New York. In a book filled with explicit stories of sex, drugs, and violence, Bobby Brown's memoir includes allegations about the late Whitney Houston, ranging from smoking pot with their then-teenage daughter to having an affair with Tupac Shakur. In Every Little Step, 
Brown describes in detail his tumultuous years with Houston and the estrangement from their daughter, Bobby Christina Brown, after the divorce. He disputes reports that he was responsible for drugs, Houston's drug problems and harshly criticizes her family and others for keeping him from their daughter. This has been your Cannabis Radio News for Thursday, June 9th, 2016. I'm Russ Belville. We have your smoking section right here. This is the Cannabis Radio Network. The National Cannabis Industry Association presents the third annual Cannabis Business Summit and Expo. The most influential business event in the marijuana industry returns for three days in Oakland, California. Join your fellow industry leaders and policy influencers June 20th through 22nd for an in-depth educational experience and network with more than 3,000 cannabis professionals. The 2016 Cannabis Business Summit and Expo will feature keynote presentations from California Lieutenant Governor Gavin Newsom and Numi Organic Tea CEO Ahmed Rahim giving you insight into cutting-edge policy discussions and the most innovative business practices. All this plus the most comprehensive expo floor in the industry. The Cannabis Business Summit and Expo, June 20th through 22nd in Oakland. Don't miss out. Register right now at CannabisBusinessSummit.com and save 15% off registration using promo code RADIO15. That's CannabisBusinessSummit.com, promo code RADIO15. Georgia. Hi, this is Willie Nelson. Alcohol prohibition didn't work in the 1920s, and marijuana prohibition isn't working today. It's time we stopped arresting responsible marijuana smokers. It's the fair thing to do. For more information, contact Normal, the National Organization for the Reform of Marijuana Laws. Call toll-free 888-67-NORML or visit their website at norml.org. The Russ Belleville Show. We're as much like Cheech and Chong as ordinary Americans are like the Three Stooges. Hey, Mo! The Russ Belville Show is proudly sponsored by the Marijuana Business Association. The MJBA, called by NBC News the Cannabis Chamber of Commerce, is the fastest-growing business association in the fastest-growing industry in America. I've been working with the MJBA for years, and I personally invite you to join the MJBA. MJBA also publishes the popular MJ Headline News on Facebook and the MJNewsNetwork.com and Marijuana Channel 1 on YouTube. Visit MJBA.net for more details. The world of cannabis is evolving at a frenetic pace. The Russ Belleville Show gets behind the headlines to take a deeper look at breaking news in our Cannabis Focus. Today in the Cannabis Focus, we're taking a look at comments on the CNBC website from Jesse Ventura, the former governor of Minnesota, the former professional wrestler and former Navy SEAL, has a book out now called Jesse Ventura's Marijuana Manifesto. And the commentary he's got on CNBC is entitled, If Pot is Legal, We Don't Need These Absurd Restrictions. And Jesse does a good job of highlighting the absurdity of what we're having to deal with here in marijuana legalization. He writes, There are many legal activities we can partake in that aren't exactly healthy decisions, but our government has no say in how frequently we do them or if we're doing them to excess. 
For instance, as Americans, we can buy and consume as much alcohol as we want, we can smoke as many cigarettes as we want, and we can eat as much fast food as we want. As an American citizen, you have the right to literally drink, smoke, and eat yourself to death. But when it comes to consuming marijuana, that's off the table, even though it is impossible to die from smoking pot to excess. He goes on to say, if you want to go into cardiac arrest from eating five Big Macs three times a day, then that's your prerogative. If you want to use marijuana to alleviate a migraine headache, be my guest. And the point that he makes throughout the rest of this commentary is that even in states where it's been legalized, there are absurd limits on how much you can have. He points out how in Colorado, a resident can have an ounce of marijuana, but a visitor to Colorado can only purchase a quarter ounce at a time. He says, name one other legal substance that is regulated in this manner. If I can buy as many cigarettes as I want, then why in a state like Colorado where marijuana is, is legal, can I not empty my bank account in a retail marijuana shop if that's what I want to do? He also brings up the no limits on purchases of alcohol and asks, if it's such a deadly substance, then shouldn't it be regulated more? Can you imagine if the government did such a thing? Let's limit the amount of beer to a six pack per person per day and see how much rioting there'd be in the streets. He says, look, if a substance is legal to purchase, then I should be allowed to purchase as much of it as I so desire. To me, that's the definition of a legal substance. Now, this is a point that we hear from stoners against legalization and people that decry the attempts to legalize marijuana. And I understand that point. And I agree with that point, actually, that something's not completely legal until there are no limits on how much of it you can purchase. But... Uh, that doesn't mean that we reject the opportunities to get the legality that we can get. It just points out that legalizing marijuana is just the first step. The first step is to get it where we get it. And then the next step is to remove these ridiculous requirements. And something that goes unsaid in uh, this screed from Jesse Ventura is that alcohol and cigarettes are legal in all 50 states. The reason that we have these purchase limits that get instituted on marijuana in the legal states is because marijuana is still illegal in 46 states. And if you could just go to the pot shop and empty your bank account to buy as much marijuana as you wanted to buy and then smuggle that across state lines and sell it for four times what you paid for it, not only the pot shop is going to run out of weed for the residents of Colorado, but it's also going to violate the coal memos uh, prescription on export and diversion of legal marijuana. So the reason we still have these absurd restrictions is because we still have an absurd prohibition in many, many parts of this country, in most of this country. Now, I would prefer, of course, that marijuana were as legal as alcohol, that you could purchase as much of it as you want, store as much of it as you want, grow as much of it as you want within a certain Restriction. I mean, even with homebrew beer, you're limited to grow to brewing like 100 or 200 gallons a year. So, I mean, we, we're not going to have legalization without any limits whatsoever. But Jesse Venture is right on this respect. And that is from the consumer's point of view, you know, taking away the government's wish to maintain prohibition in other places. But from the consumer's point of view, there's no legitimate reason to restrict our purchases in the way that they're being restricted. And now there's an amendment that's being floated by initiative in Colorado to restrict the THC in legal marijuana products to a certain level. 
A recent analysis I read said that this would make illegal in Colorado almost 80% of the products. And why do we need to restrict THC potency when more potent weed does not make it any more dangerous? Unlike alcohol, whose potency is up to 151 proof when you're buying Bacardi 151. Sorry, I picked the wrong weed. Quit sniffing glue. You're allowed to sniff glue, by the way. That's not illegal. Sniffing glue is very bad for your brain, and it can kill you. But it ain't illegal. Happy 420 to our friends in Denver and the rest of the Mountain Time Zone. We're going to take a break back in 120 seconds with the Drug War Data Mine. Earn your PhD in THC monetization with CannabisRadio.com. Don't be late. Great websites today need expert web design and development and need to be e-commerce ready and mobile friendly. But building a marketable and profitable website can be an uphill climb. Ready to make your new website or replace your existing website? Think Orange as the new way to get in the black. Orange Hill Development works with Fortune 500 companies and offer the same top quality development service at a fraction of what other providers charge. Brands like Absolute, Carlsberg, and Nestle trust Orange Hill Development. Find out why you should trust your website with Orange Hill. Contact Orange Hill for a consultation today at orangehilldevelopment.com. Tommy Chong is ready to cut through the smoke and change the tone of Tilk Radio. I hope everybody's got their vape pen handy or their pipe or their bong or whatever you use to do your medicine. But you don't, it's not a requirement. You don't have to be high for this show. Yeah, you do. <laughs> okay. I don't know who you're talking to. You have to be high to do anything. At least I do. I don't know about you. In fact, I've been high so long that being straight is another high. The Tommy Chung Podcast, only on CannabisRadio.com. Welcome to my world. Get the latest updates on The Russ Belleville Show by following Radical Russ on Twitter and liking The Russ Belleville Show on Facebook. When you are starting up a medical cannabis business, you want a fired-up lawyer who understands the needs of cannabis consumers. The Law Office of Lauren Vasquez is your fired-up lawyer for the cannabis industry. Visit her website, fireduplawyer.com, or call 1-855-MMJ-LAWS for more information. That's 855-665-5297 for Lauren Vasquez, your fired-up lawyer, or email fireduplawyer at gmail.com. Promoting the end of adult cannabis prohibition is easy because we have facts, science, reason, compassion, evidence, truth, and logic on our side. It's even easier when researchers catalog it all for us. Learn how to gather the facts on marijuana use, arrests, seizures, rehabs, drug tests, and more on this edition of Drug War Data Mining. Well, today in the Drug War Data Mines, we take a look at the Youth Healthy Risk Behavior Survey. This is another survey by the federal government on what are the kids up to these days? Just what are they up to these days, these crazy kids? And the reason we need to know this stuff, of course, is because going all the way back to 1996, as California was beginning to legalize medical marijuana, 
We heard the cries from the opposition. What about the children? Won't somebody think of the children? My God, we can't legalize medical marijuana. The kids will think it's medicine and, and then they'll want to do it. If we legalize marijuana, we'll send the wrong message to the youth. They'll think that pot use is okay and that it's okay for adults. So they'll want to do it and we'll have this massive rise in teenage marijuana use. We'll have pot zombies roaming the streets and roaming the halls of our high schools. It'll just be chaos and apocalypse if we move forward with reforming marijuana laws. That's what we heard for the past 20 years. Like I said, this is the 20th year of medical marijuana. 1996 was uh, California Prop 215. 20 years we've heard this. Oh my God, we can't legalize marijuana. What about the children? So what we found out now in the third set of federal data to make this point, past month marijuana use is on a two-decade slide among high school students. According to a statistical analysis of results from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention's 2015 Youth Risk Behavior Survey that was published today. Now, this is a survey they do every year, or every other year, I should say, and it's uh, among U.S. high school students, and the result show a statistically significant downward trend in past month marijuana use since 1995, and a downward trend in lifetime use, which is, have you ever tried it? Downward trend in lifetime use since 1997. What was that year that we started medical marijuana again? Oh yeah, 1996, that's right. So since we've started medical marijuana in this country, since we've legalized medical use in 25 states now and legalized all adult use in four states now, fewer kids are trying marijuana and those who have tried it, fewer of them are using it on a monthly basis. Lifetime pot use fell more than two percentage points down to 38.6% in 2015. Past month use slipped more slightly down to 21.7%. And this is also, let me give you some of the numbers here. And by the way, if you follow my uh, Twitter account at Radical Russ, we've got some charts. I pulled these straight from the PowerPoint from the CDC. CDC puts out these great PowerPoints. You can get these charts Feel free to tweet them to uh, Kevin Sabet and Project Sam and all those guys out there. But what these things have found is that pot smoking from its high in the 90s has declined 18% among the high school kids. A decline of 18%. One out of five kids that was smoking pot in the past is not smoking pot now. And we've also found declines in alcohol and tobacco use among the kids too. Teen smoking, kids that have ever smoked a cigarette, down 55%. Teen drinking, have they ever drank alcohol? Down 23%. Binge drinking, have they drank five or more drinks in a single sitting? Down 47%. Smoking and drinking are down by half. Smoking and drinking among the high school kids are down to the lowest levels that have ever historically been recorded in America. How many adults did we lock up for that to make that happen? Do you remember when we prohibited alcohol and tobacco because if they were legal, it would send the wrong message to the kids, right? 
No, we never did that. We didn't lock up a single adult for alcohol or tobacco to get half of the kids off of alcohol and tobacco. And we've got one out of five kids that would have been smoking pot, not smoking pot anymore. And this isn't the only survey to find this. Like I said, this is the third federal data set that has been released this year to show the same effect. If we look at the monitoring the future survey, monitoring the future is eighth, 10th and 12th graders. And they did drop from 14.4% in 2014 to 14% in 2015. That's not statistically significant, but it didn't go up. The national survey on drug use and health found 2014 past month pot use from age 12 to 17 ticked up from 7.1 to 7.4%. Again, statistically insignificant and below the 2011 rate of 7.9%. So we have three straight federal data sets that show that fear that what about the children fear if we were to legalize marijuana just didn't happen. And furthermore, when you look at the, the figures from monitoring the future, they also found that the kids have less perception of risk from marijuana smoking and they find it less uh, offensive is not the right word. Uh, uh, well, let's just use it less offensive when other people use marijuana. In other words, their perception of risk has gone down. Their acceptance of social use has gone up as predicted, as the prohibition has predicted. They say, oh, if you legalize marijuana, legalize medical use, kids won't think it's as risky. And that's true. They don't think it's as risky because it's gone from being the deadly demon drug that'll send you straight to heroin to being granny's glaucoma medicine. In other words, the prohibitionists want to punish the kids for having a now more educated, more accurate view of what marijuana actually is. And what do you know? We gave them a more educated, accurate view, stopped treating it like forbidden fruit, stopped saying it was the devil's lettuce. And what do you know? Fewer of them are interested in using it. All right, stay tuned. We got a cannabis community chat coming up. Attorney Gabriel Chorno, former Special Forces, right after this. This is the Russ Belleville Show on CannabisRadio.com. Forwarding the cause of legalization and research of the growing cannabis industry one podcast at a time. The Cannabis Radio Network. Play as Ted Growing, expelled botany sophomore and the biggest grower in town, only on Weed Firm Replanted. Available on the App Store and Google Play. It's a lot of work being the biggest grower in town. Maintaining a room full of plants while dealing with a slew of eccentric customers, from a hardcore partier to the curious neighbor next door. Is anybody home? Help me expand my bud business by unlocking new strains, customizing my grow room, and completing challenges that you can't get enough of. Grow your empire so big you can see it from space. Low on funds? Don't worry. Weed Firm Replanted is free to download. Download Weed Firm Replanted for free on the App Store and Google Play today. Get growing, Mr. Growing. This is Cannabis Facts from Robert Platshorn's TheSilverTour.org. Supported by our donors and Hemp Inc., poised to lead America's hemp revolution at HempInc.com. In 1937, the second most prescribed medicine, marijuana, was banned. 
it wasn't about marijuana. The paper, oil, and chemical industries lobbied to end hemp farming. No longer labor-intensive, an acre of hemp produced more quality paper than four acres of trees. Plastics and fibers could be produced from a plant. Hemp can even produce ten times the energy of today's ethanol. As marijuana prohibition ends, many states now allow farmers to again grow hemp. This was Cannabis Facts from the Silvertour.org, an educational nonprofit supported by our donors and Hemp Inc., a public company poised to process America's hemp crop at hempinc.com. You're not high. You're listening to the Russ Belleville Show on CannabisRadio.com. They're bringing drugs, they're bringing crime, they're rapists, and some, I assume, are good people. Okay. Maybe you're high, too. New beginner guitars and banjos are often constructed much better than ones built before your time. Why struggle? Get a new instrument or fix the old one. The trusted professionals at the Fingerboard Extension will evaluate your instrument for free. Repairs are priced for people who work for a living. Stop by the Fingerboard Extension downtown Corvallis at 120 Northwest 2nd Street today or check out its inventory on the web at fingerboardextension.com. The cannabis community is a diverse set of people from all walks of life. Conservative and liberal, black and white, straight and gay, rich and poor, and everyone in between. Learn more about the people we are freeing from adult cannabis prohibition in our Cannabis Community Chat. Welcome back, everybody. Today for the Cannabis Community Chat, we get to speak with a gentleman I met in Washington, D.C. And before we get to that, I, I have to apologize for the mistaken introductions I've been giving all day. He wasn't with uh, Special Forces. He was with the State Department. We'll find out more from Gabe himself. This is Gabriel Chorno joining us. And uh, Gabe, welcome to the show. Thanks, Radical Russ. It's great to be here. So so I don't mess it up anymore. Let's tell people uh, your background. Tell, tell folks about your time at the State Department and what it was you were doing. Okay, well, I was, let me start out. I was a Homeland Security expert and attorney for the city of Philadelphia. I was hired uh, right after 9-11 and was told I was going to be their Homeland Security expert. That job didn't exist, and I had the opportunity to kind of create that job, but basically what it was is regulatory work. I was a regulatory attorney and government affairs. I did a lot of lobbying and legislation on behalf of the city of Philadelphia. I moved about $30 million from the federal government down to the state and local level. I was on the Southeastern Pennsylvania Counterterrorism Task Force. I helped design the security perimeter of Independence Hall with the National Park, the, the National Park there. And I did that from 2002 to 2008. And then in 2007, when the administration of Philadelphia was changing, they were electing a new mayor, I was watching uh, General uh, Petraeus and Ambassador Crocker on TV giving congressional testimony about the surge in Iraq. I started doing a, bit, a, little, bit of, a little bit of research and researched a new... Um, kind of method of reconstruction that they had come up with, which was called a provincial reconstruction team that had been employed in Iraq and Afghanistan. And what it was were small groups of civilian subject matter experts hired by the State Department uh, as direct hires. It was called a 3161 
to be embedded with military um, combat teams basically out in the field. So at 40 years old, I applied. I was recruited in a matter of probably eight months with um, provisional clearances since. And I landed at 40 years old on the ground in Baghdad with 30 um, rockets a day coming to Saddam's palace, which was the embassy. And then subsequently sent to Fob Falcon and embedded with the 4th Infantry, the 1-4 ID. Hmm. I would go out on 10 to 14 hour combat patrols where I would try to find like an empty courthouse or some kind of building infrastructure to, to reconstruct, to rehabilitate, and basically throw money at problems. And <laughs> because of the contracting of the DOD, State Department generally reviews all those contracts and allocates that money. So they wanted the subject matter expertise on the ground. The, and excuse my language, the clusterfuck of Iraq was that I was hired as a emergency management specialist because that was where my specialist, Homeland Security Emergency Management of the City of Philadelphia, that's how I applied. That was the announcement that someone had spent, God knows who, how long, 18 months to come up with. And I arrived on the ground to this Ford operating base, and basically there was no work. I had, you know, the, the civil engineers, the Army engineers, brilliant guys, were going out doing the re reconstruction of the sewer systems and the electric systems. But there's no emergency management, no war. Who's fighting fires and, you know, protecting people in the middle of a war? And that doesn't happen at the local level. It happens at the national level. So... Thank God, you know, I would go out on these patrols with these civil engineers, and then I would just look for the courthouses, and I would go on combat patrols. I would do uh, vehicle checkpoint stops on the Angel Death Highway. I would uh, look for weapons caches in the palm groves. I made friends with the combat commanders, and he would say, you know, meet me at 5 in the morning, don't tell your boss, and we'd go out. My boss was a 70-year-old diplomat who would work for Kissinger, who was afraid to sign my time card, to be quite honest. <laughs> and... You know, it was a five-man team. It was an ag guy, USA guy, me, uh, like a commercial guy, and that was it. Uh, um, very interesting. And then a colonel, a JAG colonel, flew in to the PRT. It was an EPRT, embedded PRT, and said, what the hell are you doing here? And he, re he brought me up to the rule of law section of the Baghdad PRT, which was about a 50-person team with about eight people in the rule of law team. And I subsequently became the civil law expert in Iraq, basically. <laughs> I mean, after four months, this is what I knew our country was doomed. After about four months, I was summoned to the embassy to meet Ambassador Crocker face-to-face -face in his super-secret super, super secret padded room and uh, told to brief him on the state of the civil law system in Iraq. I had seen maybe five courts in Baghdad and had to extrapolate <laughs> the state of the civil law system in a country. I knew that we were up Schitt's Creek. I'd been, that was 2008. We'd been at war since 2003, five years, and I was right. the expert. Wow. Now, listen, I'm an attorney, and I'm trained to bullshit. I can bullshit with the best of them, and, you know, you do what you got to do. <laughs> so I did that for the rest of that combat tour, and I, you know, I moved a lot of money, about $70 million in all. Wow. Um, we built two huge appellate courts with the military on either side of the Tigris River. I did a lot of rehabilitation, but I saw a lot of hospitals, 
courthouses, uh, schools built that there were no teachers or doctors or lawyers. <laughs> right. Just buildings. Um, you know, I saw, yeah, I saw a general build a Ferris wheel in Baghdad. And I say, you know, who the hell's riding a Ferris wheel in Baghdad today? ISIS, uh, in head. Yeah. Having a good old time. How many people died for that service? Crazy. Now, you know, you know in Iraq, Gabe, we met at the oh. uh, protest there at the, uh, in Washington, D.C., yeah. And it was, you know, the folks with the Weed for Warriors talking about how we lose 22 uh, of our veterans to suicide every day and probably more than that. And, you know, given your experience out there with, you know, being a civilian in Iraq, I'm sure you got uh, real close to the soldiers out there. Tell us a little bit about your feelings on this, you know, when we were at that protest and, and how the government is treating our vets. Well, it's obscene, to be quite honest. And there's so many more issues that are even covered. About, uh, I don't know the statistic exactly, but something like 20% of the 30% of the women that serve were sexually assaulted in their deployments. Mm. That's a, that's an issue nobody's talking about. And so now they suffer from PTSD and the shame of rape and abuse and are blowing their heads off in higher numbers than the men. Um I was, I'm alive because 16 soldiers put themselves between me and a bullet every day. I was the guy in a tie and body armor and was the VIP in any group. I had 16 soldiers around me and I was the guy in the crosshairs. We returned fire on insurgents and I went over and kicked the dead bodies of the insurgents that were killing at me. And I'm a good American for doing it. And I also got hit by an IED on October 30th, 2008 in Termia. And those soldiers got their combat action badges, and I got a call from the BCM saying, call your mother, who died from cancer. Hmm. So I have an award, an Expeditionary Service Award, signed by Hillary Clinton, and I always say that, and a nickel gets me a nickel. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So, you know, uh, I've, I'll fight to my death to make sure that the vets have safe access to medical marijuana. It's just unbelievable that the lie has continued for this long and that they deny our veterans who serve this country the medicine that they say helps them they're calling our vets liars yeah that's a damn shame and we're starting to see some progress in congress uh blumenauer's amendment uh has gone through and it looks like uh, va doctors will be able to talk to their uh, uh patients the the soldiers about uh, medical marijuana but that's only going to cover half the states that's right. And, you know, what kind of a, of a system allows half, pa- half the country's patients to be treated and the other half not? And a president who still denies that this is medicine. And a president nominee who keeps saying we need more science. The science is there. It's been there. The U.S. government has a patent on marijuana, for God's sake. Yeah. Now, you, you know? ha- having uh, worked for the State Department, I'm, I'm just curious uh, what your feelings are on your former boss, Secretary Clinton, and her email <laughs> server. Well, I'll tell you, I worked in a very secure office with a very secure door. But if I left anything out, anything secret out on my desk, by accident, I would get a nice red slip in the morning. And I would have to go get grilled by two diplomatic security agents for an hour telling me, why the fuck, uh, excuse me, why did you do this? Why did you... It was an accident, obviously, and it's a locked room, and it locked them. So the fact that my boss was held to a different standard makes me angry. Yeah, yeah, a little frustrating. Uh, there's also, uh, we got some people in our chat room asking a few questions. Uh, John Thomas wanted to know, and I don't know if you have this info, but uh, how much of the homeland security that you saw over there in uh, Iraq 
had to do with terrorism versus having to do with controlling drugs, particularly, uh, you know, in Afghanistan, they're talking about opium, but uh, just in general, I mean, uh, what's your feelings on that? Well, you know, an embassy is a very structured organization, and everybody has their role. I also work for the International Narcotics, the Bureau of International Narcotics and Law Enforcement in Mexico City on the ground fighting the drug war. Okay. But in Iraq, um, INL and most of the lawyers and most of the law enforcement mission was at the Central Criminal Court of Iraq, and that was processing terrorist cases. I would work with my colleagues, and I would show up at a court with 15 guys with bags on their heads kneeling in front of that courthouse. It was quite a sight. And I didn't want to know what the hell was going on. I'm a regulatory attorney. I didn't care less. Yeah. You know what I mean? But I had my own job to do, and you don't look up. Right. Now, on, but, the, uh, on the Mexico City... You know, they were fighting a drug war. On that Mexico City side, though, that, that's interesting to know about your background as well. Uh, your thoughts on the drug war down there? Well, I was on a $2 billion program called the Merida Initiative, oh, which yeah. was funding Mexico and Central America's drug war. And... When I arrived, $1.2 billion had been spent on technology to secure the Guatemalan-Mexican border. Not our border, mostly. And the, the last $800 million was for what I do is capacity development. So I, w- I ran a $20 million meth diversion program where I took Mexican policemen to Quantico, Virginia, to the DEA training site and taught them, organized the program to teach them how to dismantle those large meth labs. I would stay for, it was a great job. I would stay for two weeks and, and, you know, play, and then they would be there for eight. And then I also designed the FBI's uh, $17 million anti-kidnapping program because the cartels have taken to kidnapping their own people as a cash business now because they're losing money. That's, you know, and that's something that we hear, we hear from uh, opponents of marijuana legalization is, well, we, if, we, if we legalize marijuana, that's not going to end the Mexican cartels. They'll just turn to you know, meth and heroin and kidnapping. Uh, but m- from my point of view, I would say if you've got a bunch of meth-dealing kidnappers, why would you want to give them the weed business? Absolutely. <laughs> Listen, make a dent. The weed business used to be 70 80% of their business. When I was there, they quadrupled heroin production because Mexicans, Americans love to kill themselves. Mexicans are bloodthirsty. Look, I love Mexicans, but we all know a lot of them are bloodthirsty and they hate us. And we love to kill ourselves. They're just feeding a habit that we already have. It's not, you know, it's an easy sell. If we take marijuana off the table, we could, we could make a dent. But, you know, to be quite honest, at the very core of it, the war on drugs is a failed policy that needs to change. You can't incarcerate your way out of an addiction problem. Hmm. Well put. Uh, Gabriel Charno, attorney, and you're working in Philly. Do you have any uh, contact information you'd like to give out before we let you go? Sure, you can look me up at Law Offices of Gabriel Charno, but, uh, and I'm working with Eckert Siemens, a large law firm, to represent medical marijuana licensees and ancillary businesses. You know, I returned home two years ago unemployed, and I became an advocate and a patient by necessity. And I know that cannabis can save my career like it saves my life every day and that's what i'm hoping for all right thanks for thanks for everything you're doing and and for talking to us gabe it was great meeting you in dc and we'll see you again somewhere i'm sure all right thanks russ all right stay tuned when we come back we're going to talk about that brock allen turner case rapist gets three months pot growers get decades when we return this is the russ belleville show on cannabisradio.com 
next to THC and CBD. You can now add CBR to your cannabis vernacular. CBR as in CannabisRadio.com. The next generation of vaporizers has arrived. Vuber vaporizers are blazing the way with unparalleled technology for oil, concentrate, or dry flower pens. Providing unsurpassed customer service and expert craftsmanship, Vuber vaporizers use cutting-edge technology, providing a power-packed, smoother vapor with a lifetime guarantee. Experience vaporizing the way it was meant to be, the Vuber way. I'm Radical Russ from the Russ Belleville Show. Tennessee's Congressman Steve Cohen. Well, you know, if marijuana is a gateway drug, then kissing is a fake gateway activity into sexual addiction. U.S. Representative Jared Polis. Yes, we really have a growing group of, uh, of, of representatives that um, support decriminalization. It's the Russ Belleville Show, the NPR of POT, weekdays live at 6 Eastern, 3 Pacific, exclusively on CannabisRadio.com. You're not high. You're listening to the Russ Belleville Show on CannabisRadio.com. And if standing for the Constitution make you a wacko bird, then I am a very, very proud wacko bird. Okay. Maybe you're high, too. Are you playing an acoustic guitar but want to be louder without an amp? Try a resonator guitar. The fingerboard extension has national resophonic and other resonators, square necks and round necks. Stop by the Fingerboard Extension downtown Corvallis at 120 Northwest 2nd Street today or check out its inventory on the web at fingerboardextension.com. Go wild hog in the woods. must wage what I have called total war against public enemy number one. I support a change in law to end federal criminal penalties for possession of up to one ounce of marijuana. That marijuana, pot, grass, whatever you want to call it, is probably the most dangerous drug. Some think there won't be room for them in jail. We'll make room. I experimented with marijuana a time or two, and I didn't like it and didn't inhale. One major responsibility is to encourage people to use less drugs. Entirely legitimate topic uh, for debate. Radical Rant. Welcome back, everybody. Today in the Radical Rant, we're going to go off the warpath just a little bit, but we're still talking about our criminal justice system. It's a case that has been lighting up the Internet. It's the case of Brock Allen Turner. The Stanford University swim team student who was uh, training for the 2016 Olympics, who was just convicted of rape. Actually, not convicted of rape. I'm sorry. Convicted of sexual assault. There's a difference, apparently. What had happened is there was uh, partying and drinking. And the next thing that we know from the story is that uh, Brock Allen Turner was found behind a dumpster sexually assaulting an unconscious drunk female and he'd have gotten away with it too he would have uh nobody would have ever known about this if it were not for two foreign exchange students two foreign students i think they were from the netherlands uh who had been biking by at the time and saw what was going on and shouted out at the guy brock shouted out at turner who then ran and they they chased him down and tackled him and got this uh, assault reported. 
So, of course, the outrage over this case is that this Brock Allen Turner, for whom the prosecutors had requested a six-year prison sentence, for which the law allowed for up to a 14-year prison sentence, Brock Allen Turner got six months. Six months for sexually assaulting an unconscious drunk girl at college, a drunk woman at college. And it's said that with good behavior, Brock Allen Turner may get out with just three months for good behavior. You know, good behavior. The rapist, right? The sexual assaulter. And as if that weren't bad enough, I mean, first of all, people are looking at the judge now and calling this a case of white privilege. And and the judge, actually, when he gave him the sentence, had said something to the effect of, you know, he's got a bright future. This would be too harsh on him. It would ruin his whole life. Completely disregarding the young woman whose life has been altered forever, whose psyche has been scarred forever. But this poor 20-year-old star student athlete might have a more difficult time in life. And it's bringing up all the, the other uh, improprieties and injustices in our system. Not only that he's white, but he's privileged, he's rich, he's a, a star athlete. Athletes get you know special dispensation in our society. It's also noted that at Stanford University, there had been a rape or sexual assault every two weeks reported for the past three years leading up to this uh, rape conviction. And the past the buck, the blaming that's going on here, uh, when Brock Allen Turner, the rapist, uh, wrote his letter to the judge, he blamed drinking and the party culture at Stanford. Volunteered himself to go speak to other people on campus about the dangers of alcohol. It's not about the dangers of alcohol, Brock. It's about the uh, dangers of rapists. And the uh, father also sent a, a letter that was just torn apart on the internet where he worried about his son's life being ruined over, quote, 20 minutes of action, end quote. That's all he saw it was, is, oh, just, you know, boys will be boys. A little impropriety there. 20 minutes of action to destroy a woman's dignity, her, her psyche, her, herself. It's just... The more of these cases, you know, this case, the the case of that teen who had affluenza, you remember that one where they let him off with a slap on the wrist because he's so he grew up so rich, you see, that he couldn't possibly know that his actions would have consequences. And the more we see of this double tiered system of justice, one system of justice for the rich, the white, the the well connected, the popular, the uh, talented. And another system of justice for the rest of us, the more we recognize that it's not justice, it's just us, just us, the ones who are privileged and not those of us who suffer under this system. And I've seen at least three or four memes now come through my Facebook page with, you know, one picture of Brock Allen Turner, Brock Allen Turner raped a girl, got three months. And then the other picture will be Shona Banda facing 30 years in prison for using cannabis oil for Crohn's disease and having a 11 year old who bravely told the truth in a dare class, or it'll be a picture of Jeff Mazansky who had served 
22 years of a life sentence for a third strike marijuana offense. Or it'll be anybody, any number of cases out there where someone's busted for growing, busted for possession, and are going to do far, far, far longer sentences than Brock Allen Turner will for shattering a woman's life. And when, when we see these cases happen over and over and over again, it erodes our trust in the justice system. It, it erodes that social contract that we feel. And the more people that feel like they're not going to get a fair shake, the more people that feel and, and recognize that the society punishes farmers more harshly than it punishes rapists is a society that cannot stand much longer. I don't think there should be such a thing as a mandatory minimum sentence. I believe when you have mandatory minimum sentences, you just turn judges into accountants. And I don't think this judge should be punished for giving the three-month sentence to the rapist. That's not the point of this. I want there to be an independent judiciary. I don't agree with the reasoning of this judge but there should be an independent judiciary but if we are going to have a mandatory minimum sentence if if such an abomination has to exist how is it that it exists for plant crimes and not physical violent crimes why is there not a mandatory minimum sentence for rape a mandatory minimum sentence for assault, a mandatory minimum sentence for manslaughter. Why just drugs? Again, I don't think there should be any mandatory minimum sentences, but if we're going to have them, why do we have them on the crimes that don't hurt anybody, but possibly the person who's engaged in the drug use themselves? I weep for this country. I weep for this justice system. I want people to be able to believe in the courts and to believe in justice, to believe in the rule of law. But the older I get, the more I see banksters, wall street crooks loot our economy to the, to the tune of billions and get away with it. The more I see high placed officials in our government, able to disregard the Geneva Conventions, disregard the Eighth Amendment to torture people like they did in Iraq and like they continue to do in in Guantanamo and not face any repercussions, not face any sort of justice for that? How much longer can you maintain a, a belief in our system, a belief in our society when you continue to see these injustices? Well, let's hope that there's some measure of justice somehow. I really wish this Brock Turner had gotten his six years, like the prosecution said, just so that he would have aged past his swimming prime. Just so that there's the possibility that something could have been taken from him that was very dear. Three months? Three months with good behavior means that he could be out in time for the Olympics, couldn't he? That's all the time we got for Hour 1. Stay tuned for Hour 2 if you want to learn more travesties of the justice system. 
For everyone here at Cannabis Radio, I'm Radical Russ. Thanks for joining us. And until next time, take care of each other, tokers. This is the Russ Belleville Show. The Russ Belleville Show is blogging and podcasting daily at RadicalRuss.com. You take a seed, you plant it, you grow it, you try it, you roll it, you smoke it. You take a seed, you plant it, you grow it, you try it, you roll it, you smoke it, and it goes down smooth. It's time for Toker Talk Radio, the voice of the marijuana nation. What are you people? On dope? Or you can tell. I am here. Uh, or you can talk. I experimented with marijuana and didn't inhale. Or you can talk and talk. Ten federal criminal penalties for possession of up to one ounce of marijuana. While we talk about toke on Toker Talk Radio. So, by the way, when it comes to pot, you know, if you're 40 years old, you live in a log cabin in Oregon, you got 12 giant pot plants in your backyard, have a ball. Live from beautiful Potland, Oregon, at Rolla J Studios. Plus your calls live at 971-533-7111. They're walking on their pants with their cap on backwards, listening to the end of a man, the Snoopy Snoopy Poop Dog. What's to keep somebody from getting all potted up on weed and then getting behind the wheel? Gateway theory doesn't work. It's a reality. Holland, is it real? Don't tease me. We're locking up people that take a couple of puffs of marijuana, and, and the, the next thing you know, they got 10 years. And now, here's your host, the guru of ganja graphics, the sultan of sativa statistics, and the worst nightmare of a reefer mad prohibitionist. A polite, perspicacious, productive pothead with a propensity for PowerPoint. Radical Russ Belleville. All right, welcome back, everybody. Time for Hour 2. Toker Talk Radio is in effect. Coming to you live from Scottsdale, Arizona, where it's hot. Of course it's hot. It's Arizona, right? We're in the damn desert. It should be hot. <laughs> Let's see here. Where are we at today? Oh, it doesn't want to tell me. All right. Well, we'll just look it up the other way. Here we are in Scottsdale. And uh, just a reminder, we won't have a live show tomorrow because I will be in the air making my way to Flint, Michigan for the High Times Cannabis Cup in Michigan at uh, just outside of Clio at the Auto City Speedway. Oh, it's only 102 today in Phoenix. Only 102. So not so bad. <laughs> uh yeah, so we'll be out there at the Cannabis Cup in Michigan. Hope to meet some of you there. We'll bring you some of the highlights on next week's shows. And next week, we will uh, we will be in New York at the Javits Center for the Cannabis World Business Congress and Expo. That'll be taking place Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. So looks like Monday, I'll be coming to you from Flint. And Tuesday through Friday, I'll come to you from... Oh, so Tuesday through Thursday, I'll come to you from New York because I'll be off next Friday as well. 
on another flight going from New York to San Francisco for the High Times Cup there in San Francisco, followed by the NCIA Cannabis Business Summit and Expo. And then at the end of the month, starting on the 24th and running through the rest of June, I will be off because I will be in Boise, Idaho, visiting my parents for their 50th wedding anniversary. I will be officiating their renewal ceremony because I am now the Reverend Dr. Radical Russ. <laughs> I'm an official minister in the Universal Life Church. It's a beautiful thing. Uh, let me get to some more uh, political talk here. Interesting post here on uh, Reason.com, our good friend uh, Jacob Sullum. Uh, they're asking, is an interview with uh, Hillary Clinton on the Sunday talk shows and Stephanopoulos, uh, George Stephanopoulos on the ABC show this this week with George Stephanopoulos uh, came out and basically uh, asked her point blank if she believed that there was any sort of individual right to keep and bear arms in the Constitution. Now, of course, the most recent decision on that, the Heller decision, had to do with D.C. gun control laws, and the late Justice Scalia, writing for the majority, said that there was an uh, independent of being in a militia, there was a right, a personal right to keep and bear arms. George Stephanopoulos asks, do you believe that an individual's right to bear arms is a constitutional right that it's not linked to service in a militia? And so uh, Clinton dodges and weaves, uh, blah, 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 et cetera, et cetera. And Stephanopoulos comes back and says, and the Heller decision also does say that there can be some restrictions. And again, that's what Scalia said. He said that this, this individual right isn't an absolute right. You can't just have any weapon. Uh, Scalia went to, you know, made it clear in his decision that there could be some limits on this. So Stephanopoulos asked, that's not what I asked. I said, do you believe their conclusion that an individual's right to bear arms is a constitutional right? Clinton responds, if it is a constitutional right, then it, like every other constitutional right, is subject to reasonable regulation. And what people have done with that decision, blah, 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 blah. If it is a constitutional right to bear arms. Yep. All right. Well, we'll talk about that some more. And also when we come back, some scary technology in Oklahoma when it comes to civil asset forfeiture. This is the Russ Belleville Show on CannabisRadio.com. Keep your cannabis cravings under control. Feed your mind with CannabisRadio.com. Play as Ted Growing, expelled botany sophomore and the biggest grower in town, only on Weed Firm Replanted. Available on the App Store and Google Play. It's a lot of work being the biggest grower in town. Maintaining a room full of plants while dealing with a slew of eccentric customers, from a hardcore partier to the curious neighbor next door. Is anybody home? Help me expand my bud business by unlocking new strains, customizing my grow room, and completing challenges that you can't get enough of. Grow your empire so big you can see it from space. Low on funds? Don't worry. Weed Firm Replanted is free to download. Download Weed Firm Replanted for free on the App Store and Google Play today. Get growing, Mr. Growing. I said palm trees make California. 
Yo, 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 this is your boy, TJ, Trinidad James. You're listening to Dr. Bean on Cannabis Confidential. L.A., what up? People were so excited to see you supporting our industry, and it's so important to see people who are mainstream, who are out there, that people look up to. That was my first one ever going to, so that was definitely a big deal for me. It's not just, oh man, just come smoke a bunch of joints. It's a lot of science into it. It's way more interesting than a lot of people might think who look down, per se, on what we enjoy. Cannabis Confidential, only on CannabisRadio.com. You're not high. You're listening to the Russ Belleville Show on CannabisRadio.com. Christian convictions are under attack as never before. Okay, maybe you're high too. Coming soon to a city near you, Cannabis Finance Boot Camp. Get all your cannabis accounting, legal, and compliance questions answered by their knowledgeable panel of industry experts who want to help your cannabis boom. Whether you're a grower, dispensary operator, or a newcomer to the field, your cannabis needs Cannabis Finance Boot Camp. For information on upcoming events, visit CannabisFinanceBootCamp.com. Remember, friends, there's more to life than marijuana. I just can't remember what it is. Why'd I come in here? This is the Rush Belleville Show on CannabisRadio.com. Welcome back, everyone. Nine after the hour, and we've got some terrible civil asset forfeiture news to tell you about. Just to catch some of you up, civil asset forfeiture is that uh, odious part of our American judicial system that allows the police to seize the assets of suspects without the probable cause that they actually committed a crime, mind you, but merely a preponderance of the evidence that says that their car, home, or even their cash is the ill-gotten proceeds of criminal activity. Now, civil asset forfeiture has grown to such an alarming scale Last year, for the first time ever, the police stole more money from the people than the burglars did. That's right. More money was seized through civil asset forfeiture by the police than money and goods that were stolen by actual thieves. (laughs) Just crazy, isn't it? And this has been bad enough as it has unfolded across this country where we find say, uh, uh, aspiring rap stars driving from Chicago to L.A. with twelve or $15,000 cash, all the money they had saved up to form their rap record label and to get established in the business in L.A., get pulled over somewhere in the Midwest, cops see the 1500 bucks on a black kid and say, aha, got to be drug money, and then they seize it. And when they seize this money, it's guilty until proven innocent. Remember, there's no criminal conviction involved here in the civil asset forfeiture. They don't have to find weed in the kid's car. They just have to suspect there could have been weed in the kid's car, that that money could have been weed money. And then it's up to you or up to the kid in this case to have to go to court, hire a lawyer, spend all that time. Remember, we're talking about somebody who's from Chicago moving to L.A., has to find the wherewithal to get back to this Midwestern state, wherever the hell, Kansas, Nebraska, wherever it was. Go back to court two or three times, hire a lawyer, 
spend all the money necessary to fight for his $15,000 back. That's why the cops don't like to seize the millions and millions from the, uh, you know, from the, the, the Wall Street bankers or the, the big time crooks because they've got the money to fight for their money. So they just see, you know, 4,000 here, 8,000 here, 15,000 there, and it's not worth your time or money to go back and fight for it. So it's already been bad enough. We've already had people lose their homes, lose their cars, lose their cash through no fault of their own for not being drug kingpins or dealers or traffickers in any way. But now Oklahoma has raised the ante. What they've got here in Oklahoma is this new device, which is a card reader and they can use it to seize your prepaid debit cards. So now it's no longer enough for them to find the cash in your car and take that. Now, if they find gift cards or prepaid debit cards, they can swipe those and take all the balance off of those as well. Now, there has been some confusion in the reporting of this story. A lot of people have taken the story to mean that the cops can just take your bank debit card or credit cards and process those and take your money. That's not it. This is what we're talking about. Those prepaid debit cards where you, you know, put 500 bucks on it, you load it up and now you got 500 bucks on the card. It's not connected to a bank account. Or we're talking about those gift cards like you get from, you know, Walmart or Best Buy and you'd put 50 or 60 bucks on those. Still the cops justification of this. Now this is originally a federal technology department of Homeland security started using these back in 2012 against international drug cartels that were using prepaid debit cards to move money. The international cartels figured, Hey, cops keep busting our guys with thousands and thousands of dollars of cash. So instead we'll load the money up onto a prepaid card or six or 12 or 20 or however many. And then those cards are less likely to be stopped. So the feds back in 2012, you know, passed the law and came up with the way to be able to go up against these drug kingpins who were dashing thousands and thousands of dollars on prepaid cards, moving it across the country. But as usual, a law enforcement technique intended for the feds to go after big drug kingpins and terrorists has inevitably trickled down to the local level for cops to be able to enhance their police department budget by busting people with prepaid cards. Now, the Oklahoma authorities promise us this won't be abused. No, no, they're talking. If we pull someone over that's got 40 uh, prepaid cards taped to the underside of their hood, that's who we want to get. Oh, no, we would never just go after the guy that's got a two or three gift cards or a prepaid debit card to go to college. We'd never go after that, right? Yeah, right. You know that's what's going to happen. This is what's happened in every single situation where there's been a technology or there's been a policy designed to go after the big kingpins, the big terrorists, inevitably gets used by the local, yokel county sheriff to try to raise funds for his department. We've seen this in just about every case. Uh, The Patriot Act. You remember the Patriot Act? USA Patriot Act? That was uh, right after 9-11. You know, we're going to... We're going to stop the terrorists with the Patriot Act. We're going to let the government spy on everything. 
Let him get secret warrants to look at stuff, and that'll help us stop the terrorists. So what happened? Well, those secret warrants, nine times out of ten, those secret warrants are used in drug cases, not terrorism cases. How about the uh, the NSA? Remember the National Security Agency? Uh, Edward Snowden revealed uh, through his leaks how the National Security Agency was spying on all our telephone metadata. Spying on our telephone metadata, which isn't the telephone call itself. It's when did you make the call? Who did you make the call to? How long did the call go on? Uh, which cell towers did the call go through? Metadata. And again, the whole excuse of that was, hey, we'll stop the terrorists. We'll stop the terrorists by figuring out the metadata. Guess what happened with that? It became a program by which the Drug Enforcement Administration, the DEA, would use this NSA data to try to figure out where the drug kingpins would be, where the drug dealers would be, traffickers would be. And then they'd relay that information to the local yokels and then get the local yokels to pull over the tractor trailer or pull over the car or whatever vehicle they suspected was trafficking and then make up an excuse for pulling him over that has nothing to do with the tip coming from DEA, right? Uh, you didn't blink long enough, illegal lane change, whatever the hell, right? And then DEA would instruct these local yokels how to proceed with the case, with the prosecution, how to build up evidence in that case to prosecute the guys for drugs and to whitewash any reference to the DEA ever giving him a tip. Yeah, exactly. This is what I like to call evidence laundering. You know, in, in our system of justice, both the prosecution and the defense have what's called discovery. Someone gets uh, accused of the crime. The defense can ask the prosecution for all the evidence the prosecution has built up can ask for all the experts and the witnesses and accusers that are going to testify and vice versa. The prosecution gets from the defense, its witnesses and its evidence and so forth. Both sides get to play on a level field, but under this program that was going on for years and years and may still be going on under this program, it wasn't a level field because the defense attorney would never know about the involvement of the NSA or the DEA in this case. All they'd ever know is that local yokel cops saw a tractor trailer truck pulled it over for a, a missed blinking light, you know, not changing lanes correctly. That attorney would never know that the DEA originally gave that tip. And not knowing that that tip was there means that the, the attorney couldn't go back and find out, did the DEA have probable cause to go collect that information in the first place? Was the proper chain of custody of that evidence followed? Was there any, there's nothing, there's nothing the defense attorney can do for the defense attorney. That case didn't start until the local yokels got involved, but the local yokels would have never gotten involved if it weren't for the DEA and the NSA. So, just this is just an, this Oklahoma debit card reader is just yet another example of well-meaning people in our government faced with 
an overwhelming fear of the terrorists or the drug kingpins or both, they tend to conflate the two. Just another case of reacting in fear, subverting our constitution and our civil liberties with the promise that no, 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 it's only for the big bad guys. And once again, we find out that nope, any power you give the government to go after the big bad guys is a power that can be abused to go after you. We'll talk a little bit more about this. We're going to have to take a break, but we're going to talk a little bit more about this and libertarianism in the 2016 election when we return. Denial ain't just the river in Egypt. Yes, Johnny Utah in the chat room reminds me, they call that parallel construction. Parallel construction. When you build a, a, a case parallel to what the original evidence was, but you whitewash, you launder the involvement of that uh, original tip. Happy 420, everyone. From dabs to chibas, sativas to indicas, we roll out a whole concentrate of fresh new content every week. It's like going from the greenhouse to the dispensary. CannabisRadio.com Great websites today need expert web design and development and need to be e-commerce ready and mobile friendly. But building a marketable and profitable website can be an uphill climb. Ready to make your new website or replace your existing website? Think Orange as the new way to get in the black. Orange Hill Development works with Fortune 500 companies and offer the same top quality development service at a fraction of what other providers charge. Brands like Absolute, Carlsberg, and Nestle trust Orange Hill Development. Find out why you should trust your website with Orange Hill. Contact Orange Hill for a consultation today at orangehilldevelopment.com. Normal stands for Responsible Adult Cannabis Use. If cannabis use is causing problems in your life, consider taking a break or seeking medical assistance. Consider ceasing cannabis use if you have a family history of mental illness. Don't drive or operate heavy machinery while impaired by cannabis use. Cannabis use is not without risks, even though the risks are far less than those posed by legal drugs. This is the Rush Belleville Show on CannabisRadio.com. Hey everybody, it's Radical Russ here from 420 Radio, inviting you to be like me and get your ink done at Lucky Horseshoe Tattoo, Fort Worth's most female-friendly, clean, sterile, awesome tattoo shop. Thomas and his crew are true artists who can design you a custom piece or use a design you bring in. Lucky Horseshoe Tattoo also offers all styles of tattooing as well as piercings and all-around fun. In the DFW area, stop by Lucky Horseshoe Tattoo and tell them Radical Russ sent you. Trust me, it'll feel awesome. Pod 2.0. It's not your father's Woodstock weed. <laughs> this is the Rush Belleville Show on CannabisRadio.com. Welcome back, everyone. 22 after the hour. Flipping through the internet, seeing some of the headlines. I don't know if you saw this one out of Yellowstone Park. 23-year-old man uh, ventured off of the boardwalk around all of the... Uh, high-temperature volcanic geysers that are out there in Yellowstone. 
And he apparently fell into the hottest one. And the authorities now say <laughs> there are no remains. They found some of his personal effects. Everything else boiled away. Now, it's a damn shame the guy died. But there is a certain Darwin Award to this, isn't there? You're on a boardwalk around pools of boiling hot water and signs that say, stay on the boardwalk, avoid the pools of boiling hot water. (laughs) I just, I know it's awful for his family and friends and everything, but geez, dude. All right, let me get to some other marijuana stories. This one coming from New Zealand. Top jockey in New Zealand, Chris Johnson, suspended for two months over a cannabis positive. The leading jockey on the South Island of New Zealand. And um, he has an eight-week suspension for testing positive for cannabis on May 24th. He had a reading of 43 nanograms per milliliter, but claimed he did not knowingly use cannabis and could offer no explanation why it was in his system. His trainer believes that Johnson had been spiked. Someone spiked him. He predicted it must have happened on a boozy night in Wellington on May 21st when he could not remember much of the evening and woke up in his rental car around 8 a.m. the following morning. Then he failed the random drug test. Um, you got to love that. First of all, we're drug testing jockeys. (laughs) Really? (laughs) Like what's the, what's the side effect? What's the, the consequence if we let a bunch of high jockeys on the horses, we're not drug testing the horses, (laughs) we're drug testing the jockeys, right? Like I can see the argument if we're talking NASCAR, right? Drug testing, don't get me wrong, I'm against drug testing in all respects, but at least you can make a logical argument for drug testing a NASCAR driver. Hey, man, you're you're handling a car that's going 200 miles an hour around a whole bunch of other cars going 200 miles an hour, and not having your best reaction times could definitely be harmful to you, the other drivers, and even the spectators, so I can at least make that argument. What's the argument for drug testing the jockey? <laughs> Like the horse isn't gonna, I mean, I just, I I can't wrap my mind around this. What is the high jockey going to do? (laughs) That's going to be so bad to the horse, to the other horses. Hell, the horse racing itself is more harmful. Didn't you see at the Preakness the other week, they had to put two horses down. (laughs) One of them broke its leg and they had to, they just killed it. But yeah, let's not, let's not let some 90 pound five foot one guy smoke any weed. (laughs) There can be some harm there. My God. So they suspended him. And so it's bad enough that we're drug testing these jockeys, but, but for this jockey to say, well, somebody spiked it. Somebody spiked me. Must've been, must've been that night when I was out getting plastered fucking drunk to the point where I'm waking up in a rental car. Can't remember what happened. Somehow that's of no concern, <laughs> right? Oh, 92 pound guy. You want to drink until you pass out? Sure. We'll let you get on the horse and ride the next day. No problem. What? You smoked a joint. <gasps> ban, ban him, ban this man. 
for two months. <laughs> That's crazy. Speaking of marijuana and sports, another great story on Jim McAlpine, uh, the owner of the 420 Games brand, who is opening up the uh, cannabis gym in San Francisco, Power Plant Fitness. He's uh, opening this up with uh, Ricky Williams, the Heisman Trophy winner and NFL leading rusher, Ricky Williams. You can consume cannabis while you're working out at the gym. Great stuff. Uh, And I really hope this kind of starts to open up people's minds. And I, you know, I've always thought that the 420 games was a great uh, way of doing that. A great way for people to come out. Not only do you come out of the closet as a cannabis consumer, but then you go run 4.2 miles and and the public seeing all these people running in the 420 game, they got to go, got to, it's really got to, Attack that stereotype of lazy stoners. Now, you and I already know that the statistics show that we have better body mass index. We tend to be healthier people. But to the general public, those studies and those stats aren't going to mean as much as actually seeing buff dudes working out who smoke pot. Buff chicks working out who smoke pot. And especially when they'll start to see what's really going to be fun is when people who are into this fitness stuff start interacting with other fitness buffs who aren't cannabis consumers. And they start talking about their, their workouts and, and, and how they achieve whatever level they've achieved. Imagine the, the dude trying to get himself all swole, talking to the big buff dude. Bruh, how'd you get so swole? Man, you got great delts, man. Great lots. How'd you do it? Bruh, it's easy, man. Go down to Power Plant Fitness, get real high, and I start pumping out, man. I just can't wait for those conversations. You know, a lot of that bodybuilding community, they got this, you know, got to eat perfectly. We got to eat this many calories and this many fat grams, and we got to have whey protein powder. They're all really heavy duty into their bodies, right? the more it becomes acceptable to be adding cannabis to that mix among the top level of athletes, professional and just recreational athletes, the harder it becomes to maintain all these crazy stereotypes. It's just amazing to me how quickly this is happening. And, and, and it's not too surprising, really. I mean, if you, uh, if you think about the fact that a freshman at UCLA right now has never not known medical marijuana. Kid growing up in the L.A. Basin, going to college right now, it's been medical all his or her life. And it's that same, you know, the the younger generation has the same attitude toward marijuana as they do toward gay marriage. They, They can't even understand what the big deal was. I mean, for them... They grew up with, you know, Will and Grace and Ellen and Queer Eye for the Straight Guy. And, you know, every show had, had a gay character that was in a positive light. And we're going to see the same thing happening for this next generation coming up as what they see growing up in the movies and TV keeps moving away from the drugs are bad. You know, when it used to be whenever there was marijuana portrayed in a sitcom 
or a family drama or any of these shows on TV, there was always a moral lesson involved. There's always this time on a very special episode of Full House, right? (laughs) Whatever it was, there'd be, you know, drastic consequences for the person involved with the marijuana. The whole show would be a lesson, right? And in fact, some of those lessons weren't accidental. Some of those lessons were paid for by our government. There was a a scandal uh, last decade where they found that federal funds were being used to pay Hollywood scriptwriters to insert anti-marijuana themes into popular sitcoms. So it wasn't always even accidental. But now, when marijuana is featured on a show, it's not even like, like, like the evolution had been, right? That first, you know, marijuana, drugs are bad. Whoever's using pot, they're going to get busted. They're going to get, you know, morally uh, beat down. And then the second wave was pot is funny, right? That's, that, that's what I call like your that 70s show wave and your Harold and Kumar wave. You know, anywhere from, from well, I mean, of course, Cheech and Chong started it. But, you know, looking at the 90s, there was this wave, especially I'd centered around that 70s show, where pot went from being something to be morally offended by to something that was merely a, a, a youthful indiscretion. I mean, the way that that 70s show would would treat their characters using pot wasn't necessarily celebratory. I mean, from the character's point of view, it was. But from the show's point of view, it wasn't necessarily celebrating it so much as remember the 70s, remember how freewheeling it was, kind of like how Obama looks back at his pot smoking. That was something I did in my youth, but not something for respectable people today. So that was the second wave. And that second wave also, you know, the comedy shows like Saturday Night Live and so forth that would, you know, have a joke from time to time. But now we're in this third wave on t- in TV and movies where marijuana use isn't the subject of the movie at all or the TV show at all, but merely an attribute of a character or a story. Like I've seen numerous shows where characters are smoking pot but there's no like mention of the pot smoking. The pot smoking is not part of the plot. Nothing bad happens to the characters because they smoked pot. It's just a part of their life. It's just a part of the scenery. That's the third wave that we're in right now where it's just no big deal. And, and we're seeing a similar third wave with respect to the whole gay marriage thing, right? Where a character might in passing mention, you know, a female character in passing might mention her, her wife or her partner, but nobody's, it's not a, now a very special episode about lesbians, right? It's not, it's just, Oh, she happens to be gay and has a partner, but then the story goes on and we don't care about that little aspect. So with that in mind, with this generational perspective in mind, I can only imagine in 10 years, where we're going to be with acceptance of, of, of cannabis, how the generation that's now in their twenties starts to hit their thirties and starts to become in charge of everything. How much longer can this prohibition last? You know, I, I'm, I'm hopeful that within the next 10 years, I'll be obsolete. (laughs) I, I won't be necessary. 
that that the acceptance of cannabis will be so universal there won't be any controversy over it anymore. That's that's the day I'm working toward. We're not quite there yet. And there could always be some sort of moral panic or crazy change that happens that pushes us back farther than we've made so far, but I don't know. I think demographically speaking and intellectually speaking and societally speaking, I think we're over the hump. I think it just keeps getting more legal from here on out. And that's a good thing. All right, let's take a break. And uh, when we come back, I was telling you yesterday about Sheldon Adelson buying the uh, Las Vegas Review Journal, forcing the editorial board to switch their tone on marijuana legalization. Well, it seems like not all the reporters got the message. (laughs) We'll see how long this one keeps his job or her job when we return. This is the Russ Belleville Show on CannabisRadio.com. Legal to listen to all over the world. We're just not sure about France. CannabisRadio.com. The National Cannabis Industry Association presents the third annual Cannabis Business Summit and Expo. The most influential business event in the marijuana industry returns for three days in Oakland, California. Join your fellow industry leaders and policy influencers June 20th through 22nd for an in-depth educational experience and network with more than 3,000 cannabis professionals. The 2016 Cannabis Business Summit and Expo will feature keynote presentations from California Lieutenant Governor Gavin Newsom and Numi Organic Tea CEO Ahmed Rahim giving you insight into cutting-edge policy discussions and the most innovative business practices. All this plus the most comprehensive expo floor in the industry. The Cannabis Business Summit and Expo, June 20th through 22nd in Oakland. Don't miss out. Register right now at CannabisBusinessSummit.com and save 15% off registration using promo code RADIO15. That's CannabisBusinessSummit.com, promo code RADIO15. Ignite the conversation on some trending topics along the Cannabis Radio social media network. Join our crew of thousands on our Cannabis Radio page on Facebook or at Canna Radio, C-A-N-N-A Radio on Twitter. Plus, look for our Facebook and Google Plus pages for all of our original programs and connect with Dr. Dina, Kyle Cushman, Dr. Mitch Earlywine, Nurse Heather, Doc Rob, the host of Gondrepreneur, and more. Connect with the growing Cannabis Radio social crusade at Canna Radio on Twitter or search for Cannabis Radio on Facebook, Google Plus, and Instagram and grow with us. You're tuned into the Russ Belleville Show, the voice of the marijuana nation, only on CannabisRadio.com. At Herbie's Cannabis Seeds, we pride ourselves on bringing you the best quality seeds from the world's most respected cannabis seed producers, all at the lowest online prices. You can find Herbie's Seeds at Herbie'sHeadShop.com. All cannabis seeds are sold as souvenirs and as a means of preserving cannabis genetics. Herbie Seeds in no way intends to condone, promote, or incite the use of illegal or controlled substances. We strongly urge all prospective customers to check their national laws prior to placing an order. Herbie's Seeds at Herbie'sHeadShop.com. Proud sponsors of the Russ Belville Show and 420 Radio. 
Pod 2.0. It's not your father's Woodstock weed. <laughs> this is the Rush Belleville Show on CannabisRadio.com. All right, welcome back, everyone. 39 after the hour. Interesting story coming out of the Las Vegas Review Journal. We mentioned yesterday how uh, Sheldon Adelson, the Las Vegas billionaire, the man who donated $4.5 million of his own money to help defeat medical marijuana in Florida in 2014, that Sheldon Adelson. Well, Sheldon went and bought the Las Vegas Review Journal, the leading newspaper in Las Vegas. And for years, going back to 2002, this paper's editorial board has always supported marijuana legalization. They've always opined in favor of marijuana reform. But last December, Sheldon bought the newspaper. And in an editorial this week, the editorial board reversed its position on legalizing marijuana. Apparently, Sheldon took the board to a drug rehab. And that changed their mind, according to uh, the report. That opened their eyes to how deadly dangerous marijuana was because some people become alcoholics and heroin addicts had nothing to do with marijuana, but still. So Sheldon Adelson got them to switch. And I don't think it was the tour to the drug rehab facility at all. I think it was the editorial board realizing they'd be out of a job if they didn't do what uncle Sheldon wanted him to do. So that's why I'm kind of surprised by this story that's on the Las Vegas Review Journal today, written by Lauren Linehan. And I don't know if that's a female or a male because it's spelled L-A-W-R-E-N, kind of like Lawrence would be spelled. So I don't know. But whoever Linehan is, congratulations on the story. It's entitled Veterans Say Marijuana Helps Ease PTSD and Pain. The Las Vegas Medical Marijuana Association had a tour of a local dispensary and let veterans describe how medical marijuana has helped them. They had one veteran. Her name's Christina Alfonso Zia. She uses medical marijuana for her post-traumatic stress. She says, from the time she left the military, I attempted suicide every year. At first, she turned to alcohol, synthetic marijuana, and other drugs to cope. After a while, the opiates don't work, she said. But once she got on medical marijuana, it worked for her. Another veteran, uh, Top Gun Commander Shane Terry, has chronic pain from a combat injury, does not use any other pharmaceutical drugs, uses medical marijuana to relieve his pain. Seth Holy Cross, an Army veteran, patient that uses cannabis for post-traumatic stress, he says he tried Therapy, sleeping pills, antidepressants, and anti-anxiety medication before turning to cannabis, saying, quote, they would make me sick. I couldn't get out of bed at times. I would miss work because of it. I just had to get away from that stuff, end quote. So a positive story on medical marijuana for our veterans just after the Las Vegas Review Journal board, editorial board, opined against legalizing marijuana. So at least... Somebody's still got some stones out there at the Las Vegas Review Journal. Thank you, Mr. or Ms. Linehan, for that, uh, for that report. We appreciate it. It, it. 
it's mind-boggling, though, every time we have to bring this up, that we wouldn't let our veterans just smoke pot. I mean, really, obviously, I think marijuana should be legal for all people, right? I don't, even though I would have limits on it commercially, like you couldn't buy it until you were 18 and you couldn't grow it until you were 18, I still wouldn't have criminal penalties, even for minors that are caught with it. Stay tuned because Stoner Jesus is up next. For everyone here at CannabisRadio.com, I'm Radical Russ. Thanks for joining us. And until next time, take care of each other, tokers. This is the Russ Belleville Show. The Russ Belleville Show is blogging and podcasting daily at RadicalRuss.com. You take a seed, you plant it, you grow it, you try it, you roll it, you smoke it. You take a seed, you plant it, you grow it, you try it, you roll it, you smoke it. You take a seed, you plant it, you grow it, you try it, you roll it, you smoke it, and it goes down.